Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for a Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present a roundtable chaired by Sharon Paul Rupai with Aruna Srivastava, Christos, Fred Waugh, and David Garneau as participants. My name is Isabel Mahalski, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. This interview was recorded during a Tea House symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of color to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they have experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This roundtable was recorded as part of the gathering's work. In this interview, the participants discuss health, the body, community building, and the meaning of care. Aruna Srivastava has spent many years working as an anti-racism educator in various community-based arts and academics contexts, focused in more recent years on the complexities and intersections of disability, illness, age, and trauma in her work. Christos is a Menominee poet and activist. Christos was born in San Francisco, and in her work, she examines themes of feminism, social justice, and native rights. BC poet Fred Waugh's most recent project is a collaboration with Rita Wong about the Columbia River, Beholden, a poem as long as the river. He lives in Vancouver and on Kootenay Lake. David Garneau, who is Métis, is a visual arts professor at the University of Virginia, whose practice includes painting, curation, and critical writing. Um, here in a couple of, I guess, capacities, uh, one is a distinguished writer in residence at the University of Calgary for the year, uh, but I'm also an assistant professor at the University of Winnipeg uh, in Women and Gender Studies. So that is my two hats. 
<laughs> three hats, four hats. Um, and we're going to talk about the topic um, still kicking, so it's, you know, still kicking, uh, health, the body, community building, and the meaning of care. And we're going to follow the same format uh, that was uh, this morning. Um, so the panelists will be given uh, five, six, seven minutes. <laughs> four. four minutes, and they'll take up ten, right? Um, to to talk about what does that while well, still kick while well, still kicking. That's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but can you, you really kick? can you kick? <laughs> but Can't when kick we, anymore. <laughs> when we start thinking about um, this wisdom council, but I mean, I'm hearing not just in Winnipeg, but also. Uh, here in Calgary, within writing communities, POC communities, BIPOC communities, um, you know, who is who is still around? Who started this? A lot of undergrad graduate students will say, well, you know, I'm the first to do this, and I will tap them on the shoulder and say, no, you're not, actually. <laughs> there is a long history of people, and I forgive, you know, they're undergrad students, so you forgive, um, and you lead them into the library. Hopefully they find their way. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm sort of junior in my career, but I've been around a long time in Can Lit. Uh, I started in Canadian literature. I started with, um, well, with Larissa, with uh, Ashok Mathur, with um, Roy Meeky, Art Meeky. Um, I was the, on the Asian Heritage Month um, planning committee for the city of Calgary, and that was when it was given a lot of money to do a lot of stuff. And um, that was a while ago, and it's no longer uh, there to do that kind of work. Um, but, I mean, th those are the kinds of histories, I think, that we were talking about. But through all of that, there's also, um, as, as we know, the body, and how do we maintain it, how do we keep it. Uh, in the academy, we do a lot of sitting, right? So this is why I asked you to stand and stretch and think about your body, because we know we sit in this position all the time, and then we're achy and sore, and then you have Larissa and I complaining about our knees later on. Um, so, uh, I would like uh, the, the panelists to, to speak to the topic, um, and also to provide a little mentorship, a few strategies uh, around whatever the topic, or the whichever one that you're taking up, either the body, uh, community building, meaning of care, and all of those intersections together. Do we have to provide strategies? Do you have to provide <laughs> strategies? No, but I think that for the... I'm, I think just, it's, I'm actually it, just joking. Oh, are you joking? Okay. Yeah. More sugar? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to have uh, Runa Sevastava start, start us off here. And there are bios that you have, so I'm not going to go through all the bios. I hope that's okay. It just takes up a lot of time. So, um, Jean-Paul, as the moderator, just cut me off if okay. I'm going over my five to six minutes. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk fairly personally uh, today, um, but I want to give a shout out. First of all, thank you, Jean-Paul, for mentioning Asian Heritage Month all those years ago, because that's how I'm going to start. Okay. Um, I did want to uh, do a pre-start, though, by talking about um, people who um, can't be here, and Roy Miki is one of them. Um, 
and that the people that we're, we're trying to remember are often here, um, there's others as well, often here um, uh, because they are, they can't be here. And um, so some of you saw my discombobulation last night when Larissa asked me to get up and do something, and that was because I physically wasn't doing all that well. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Larissa, one of our earliest collaborations was um, were two issues of open letter called the body chronic. Now that is relatively ancient history for, for people who probably weren't even born then. Um, the, that was the early 90s? Yeah. yeah, I was here anyway, at least I was in, at University of Calgary. And it was one of the first issues that I know of that featured the work <coughs> of people, um, mostly women, right? that um, story, told stories about chronic illness. Um, and Larissa and I worked on that here in Calgary as co-editors. And um, unfortunately, it's quite hard to find now um, unless, you, uh, unless you look for back issues of open letter. So I'm, I'm going to talk about chronic illness and having lived with um, several chronic illnesses for most of my life and what that means in terms of activism and the embodiment, uh, embodiment as a, someone who identifies as a woman, as a racialized woman, and um, as I get older, um, what that means in terms of the things that I want to do as opposed to the things that I am physically able to do. So, for example, I chose not to stand up and do these exercises. Um, I also live in chronic pain as well. So I am a, a type 1 diabetic. I'm starting in the middle of my story. I'm a type 1 diabetic. I got diabetes in the first year of my PhD. Um, and they said it was caused or triggered by stress. <laughs> so um, they said it was very common. So I, I'm a type 1 diabetic. and. I also wanted to, to say that any of the creative writing I have done has been about illness. It's been about the concepts of health and illness and those moments in my life where I've had to, um, to come to some sort of reckoning either with my health um, or with someone else's. Um, and I didn't realize that till yesterday. Um, so I have here, and it was an Asian Heritage Month Whenever, probably about 2006, seven, four, five, four, five. It would have been. It wouldn't have been. Any, but that I was um, prescribed uh, as a long-time diabetic. I was dis uh, prescribed uh, an insulin pump, and so I'm going to show it to you because I wrote a lovely piece that completely put the audience off. It was very funny, um, and I, <laughs> if I do say so myself, um, and. One of, uh, that's one of the things I've been thinking of reading last night, but I can't find it anywhere on my computer. It's gone. Um, and one of the things I did was a sort of show and tell to start. And the pump is called an animus pump. So I played it a lot, the, a lot with the word animus. Um, and I started with the show and tell. So I'm going to do it here too. This is my insulin pump, Gorilla Glue on the back. Um, this pump is now uh, Bayer, the large pharmaceutical company that makes these, decided they were going to get out of the insulin pump business. 
So um, when I talked about institutionalization and pharmaceutical companies yesterday, I'm now being told that I have to make a choice about what I'm going to do. This now is obsolete and it won't be supported anymore. And I'm hanging on to this for dear life. But when I uh, read that piece, I wrote quite, it was my first animus pump. And so I was playing around with the notion of being a cyborg and uh, you know, mourning my syringes and you know, all those kinds of things. And you could see people in the audience just kind of staring at me, not knowing how to react to me waving around my insulin pump and, and so forth. Um, so I was quite sad, and I didn't write any more about my pump. And I'm not sure I can get it back on. I'll just leave it here. Just don't let me stand up. This is a very newfangled blood tester. It's electronic. It's called a, um, a flash tester. And I'm going to test it. Oh, no. What does it say? Oh, it's a reminder. Okay. You do need your eyes for these things. So I'm going to test my blood sugar. And it tells me that blood sugar is a little high and it's going up. It's that pizza. Um, so the pharmaceutical company that makes this, which isn't Bayer, um, had to, had to fl fight for a decade because the technology was available years and years ago. The technology for pumps was available in the 90s and the pharmaceutical companies uh, worked together to make sure that it was not available um, because pumps, insulin pumps, are a loss leader for all pharmaceutical companies, which is why Bayer got out of the business of pumps. Um, how they make their money is that we buy strips and contraptions like this and, and so forth. So that's how they make the money. A pump costs seven to $8,000. So you can imagine that for people who don't have insurance, um, it would be quite difficult to purchase a pump, except in Alberta and I think Ontario where there's now an insulin pump program, so we get them for free, and the supplies. Um, so when I was talking about institutions yesterday, I, I was thinking about pharmaceuticals and medicine, um, where the, my sense of having choices really seemed very, very limited, uh, working with doctors and so forth. I don't feel like I have a lot of choices, although I have the privilege of having these things paid for. Diabetes shortens my life, and so I keep being reminded that I probably have about a decade left, which is scary. It's a scary thing to be told every time you go see a doctor. I also have two other uh, chronic illnesses. One is epilepsy, which I've lived with since I was 12, and I'm medicated for quite thoroughly. Um, and the other is a family connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos type 6, um, which has killed two or three of my family members. We know it's killed two of my brothers, and it probably killed my mother as well. So our family is diminishing because of uh, uh, congenital connective tissue disorder. Um, and living with those, um, all of those I've written about, um, living with those uh, has, I wouldn't call it a burden, and I do disclose a lot of this in terms of uh, to students uh, in public places. It's not difficult for me to do that because I believe in it. I learned that politics of disclosure 
from anti-racism work. Um, I also think it's important in my classrooms and in other contexts like academia to do this. So the, I have a question. So this is my next part of, of this, this talk, and then I, um, I'll take questions later. For anyone who feels comfortable, so please don't answer this question if you don't feel comfortable. We are in an institution that does not validate people who are ill or who have disabilities. And it's one of the things that I think many institutions don't, but at least when you're in a hospital, you see people who are ill. Um, is there other people here, just hands, hands up, or just don't answer this question if you don't feel comfortable, who experience themselves or know people who have experiences of long-term chronic illnesses? Thank you. So the reason I, I do, I, I, I ask these in class, this in classes as well as other gatherings, is because of that huge silence, um, that huge way in which we're expected to um, not talk about it, not show our devices, not talk about the meds we're on, not talk about the time it takes. So I spent two full days this past week just with doctors um, and hospitals and so forth. Thank you, Sharon Paul. Uh, so that's five or six? Six. Okay, I will finish then. So I, uh, I'm, I, I, I theorize, I write a lot about embodiment. That is the reason I do so. From the age of 12 on, um, I have been dealing with a, a neurological disorder that doesn't make me believe that the body is whole. Um, I, I am conscious during my seizures, and I know that the body doesn't exist. And so, um, and then with the with the, the Ehlers-Danlos and the diabetes, um, I'm, I, I've, I have to have had to come to terms with my relationship to these illnesses in an institution like this, or in an institution in institutions like medical systems, as well as that sort of institutionalized. It's like a cloud. Um, I've said to my students, it's like you suddenly realize that there's a smell in the air and you're trying to identify the smell. So I'm supposed to go next? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Krista. I uh, picked the word community out of the <laughs> mishmash of words. I don't understand academic speak. I only know one uh, academic word, which is hegemony. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, I've had fun using it against various groups of people. But anyway, um, so community was the word that I connected with, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, I belong to a lot of uh, different strands of oppression. Um, I'm grateful for all that oppression has taught me because um, oppression can deepen your compassion for other people. It doesn't always do that, but you can choose to have <clears throat> oppression deepen your compassion for other people. So one of the strands that 
I exist in is that of being a dyke. And I use the word dyke quite deliberately because uh, when I came out, lesbian was used for upper-class white women, and the rest of us were all dykes. And in fact, there were separate bars. So in uh, San Francisco, where I came out, <clears throat> uh, the white dyke or the white lesbian bar was called Pegs, and the dyke bar was called Mods, and it was considerably seedier. In order to get into Pegs, you had to wear a pantsuit, right? And uh, no jeans, no, you know, they were very strict. And they had a woman there who, you know, would sort of look you over. <laughs> and I managed to sneak in to Pegs twice by wearing a pantsuit and going with a white person, right? You know, you can sort of, if, you, if you're really quiet, you can sort of like pass sometimes. But she was also drunk that night and not really paying attention, both nights actually. Uh, someone had told me that she was drunk. So anyway, I didn't like Pegs very much. Uh, they had terrible music, no dancing. Um, <laughs> Everybody was standing around very sophisticatedly holding their mixed drinks, you know, because at the, the beginning, mods only had beer, right? And Pegs had vodka Collins. <laughs> so, any rate, I came out at a time when you had to wear at least three pieces of women's clothing because if the police stopped you, you could be arrested. So, women who were butch would wear women's socks and women's underpants and have a woman's handkerchief, right? Generally speaking, lacy. And then they would wear a tie and shirt and all the rest of it, right? So they could look butch, but if the cops came, you whipped out your lacy hanky and I'm a girl, I'm a girl. <laughs> so, so my being a lesbian in the very beginning years, oh, I used that word, huh? How arrogant. Um, anyway, was a, a system of dodging the police uh, who came into the bars and raided and took uh, butches away. And one of the things that happened is that uh, if butch women were taken away, <clears throat> you might not ever see them again because they were beaten to death uh, by the police. So some of us, <clears throat> this was one of my first acts of resistance, I was 18, we decided to volunteer to suck the dicks of the cops when they came to raid. And that's what we did, and they didn't take any butchers away. So some of my work as an activist is very against what most people would consider activism, right? So, so my strategy about activism is figure out who your enemy is, and I mean really figure out who they are, what motivates them, and use what motivates them to protect yourself. <clears throat> so being a lesbian at that time was illegal. Um, I was not 21, and the woman that I was lovers with was 21. So we were always terrified that we would be arrested and that <clears throat> she would be sent to jail for corrupting a minor, although I was the one who had corrupted her. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so, all of my 60 years or so of being a dyke has been full of police, fear, hiding, lying. Uh, to have a job in those days, you could not be a lesbian or a dyke. You could not in any way 
indicate that's who you were. Um, oh, what wonderful socks. Oh, those are great. They have cherries on them. Um, sorry. Don't have a very... See, now i got to see, too. Come on now. Okay, okay. Show off those wonderful cherry socks. I'm so jealous. Anyway, um, so being a lesbian or a dyke for me was always something that was difficult in the larger society. In my family, uh, I was visiting an uncle, and my girlfriend was with me, and we did not know that his son was... Uh, rather perverted, and his son went up in the hills behind the house with binoculars and happened to see the two of us kiss in the bedroom by ourselves. And so when I was 19, my entire family stopped speaking to me, knew I was a dyke, there was a big kerfuffle, and uh, it lasted for a long time. <laughs> so in some ways, this was really lucky for me as an activist because it meant I could be an out dyke anywhere I went. I never had to pretend about anything anymore. And so I was starting then to speak about being a dyke when I was very, very young. And uh, as time passed, I don't think being a dyke is really acceptable, but the police are no longer involved, which is very nice. Uh, they're not useful for very much. And um, so, I'm coming along, coming along, going through all of this, uh, disagreeing in, in large part with what most of the queer activist group was talking about. So, for instance, when they were talking about getting gays in the military openly, I don't like the military, <laughs> and I think war is one of the more stupid things that men do. No, it's the stupidest thing. War is the stupidest thing men do. <clears throat> and uh, so I was working with battered women. So you see my, my, my emphasis or my, um, my interest in liberation was not in line with the queer people, right? I'm still not in line with them. Um, and getting more privilege for our specific group always struck me as a very bizarre goal. Um, because I have always wanted, since I was very, very small, for all people to be able to live a good life, everyone, even the people I don't like, which takes a lot of uh, discipline. <laughs> At any rate, so time goes on, times goes on. Uh, Sunny and I got together 15 years ago. Uh, she's a Tanaha woman, which is known as Kootenai. And we had both quit drinking, which was very important because a large part of queer culture is drinking because the only place you could meet was in a bar. You couldn't go to the library and say, hi, you know, you want to get together? <laughs> because you wouldn't know what would happen. You know, you get stabbed or something. So bars were the world that we live in. And so to stop drinking is to leave your world. But both of us got sober. Uh, we both got into therapy, which was useful because we had mean white moms, both of us. And uh, we went to a two-spirit gathering in Montana. I didn't want to go. Uh, my friend Raven 
literally dragged me out of my cabin on Bainbridge and said, you're coming. I was like, I don't want to go to one of those goddamn things. So there I am at the Two-Spirit Gathering, and they're really beautiful. <laughs> I didn't want to go because the same reason. I never went to the Women's Music Festival because it was like, they said, oh, there's hundreds of naked women. I was like, oh, my God. No, I can't. No! <laughs> I'm a very modest person. You know, you never see me naked. So uh, anyway, I don't want to see naked people either, not even on TV. I can't stand it when they have love scenes. I'm always like, ah, you know. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> someone once wrote me into watching lesbian porn movie, and I was so disgusted, I threw up, literally. It was like, ah, you know, because... Um, to me, sex is sacred, and it's very private between two people, or I guess could be a few more people if you're that inclined, but uh, it's not something that other people should ever watch. It's not appropriate. So anyway, crude that I am. Uh, so I've gone through all these years, 72 years of being a person who has faced incredible discrimination not only as a dyke, but also as a two-spirit woman. Um, there was, for a long time, a lot of hostility among Native people about queers. Primarily, I blame the Catholic Church, uh, which, I don't know if you know this, but in the US, uh, reservations were assigned churches. So, and the Catholic Church was the one that got the most reservations. They actually paid to uh, grasp reservations. So Menominees are Roman Catholics, Lakotas are, you know, on and on. So the Catholic Church really not only hates Indians, but hates queers as well. So I got out of that church when I was 13 and didn't look back. At any rate, this whole arc of my life has been one of rejection, fear, um, even when they made marriage legal, Sonny and I went and bought the, uh, the paper you're supposed to buy so that you can get married. And uh, then we were looking at each other and it was like, we don't belong to a church, you know, we don't have hardly any friends, we don't like people really very much. <laughs> so, you know, how are you gonna have a, I'm not wearing a white dress, that's never happening. She's not either, so, you know, it's like, what, you know? So we sort of had this, certificate for a while and then it expired <laughs> and, and and then we were both like oh my god look it's expired we can't do it now and then we both sort of looked at each other and was like well that's good that's better because soon enough they're going to have concentration camps and our names won't be on the list right we won't be in the pile of people that they're going to take away and put in concentration camps i'm still expecting that by the way so um so we didn't get married. We're still not married. We're living in sin and uh, enjoying it. But so uh, about a month ago, a um, couple months ago now, there was banners up. The Puyallup tribe, which is where we live, we live on Puyallup land, were going to give <clears throat> a celebration of queer people. And uh, they invited everyone to come. 
So even though we're not Puyallup, we, we went. And uh, the dance opened. Um, women were dancing, and they were making gestures of welcome. So we were welcomed. Um, and people spoke, and, and it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And it was the first time in my life that I had been welcomed by Native people for who I was. I just still don't think they'll let us dance the two-step, but that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's coming. <laughs> and uh, so this was then my community because for the first time in my life, I was accepted for who I was. And uh, so I want to give this to the, the architecture or whatever that this, what is this called? Right, I want you to have this little flag so that you can plant it <laughs> uh, on the moon of academia. <laughs> Thank you. So I think I'm under my time? Yeah, you're under the time. Yeah. yeah. Planted. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Can I say something? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, last year, in, in my nation, we ha uh, my nation has two communities. And last year, for the first time in both communities, at our powwows, when the flags marched in, we had the, the, the rainbow oh flags my gosh. marched in. And oh. now it sits up there uh, with, with the other flags. Oh, that so, makes me so happy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes joke that, that I started out with can I, how can I get white people to behave and how can I get straight people to behave in the Indian community? And I've always said that the straight people in the Indian community are behaving faster <laughs> than the other people are because there's a, an understanding, I think, a depth of understanding. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk more later. Red? <laughs> oh. What a switch. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said it that way. But <laughs> um, well, I actually want to come that way so I can see. Oh, I can't sure. see from yeah, here. Please clean filter. So, okay. I'm a, <laughs> so please clean floor. <laughs> I'm, a, um, uh, I'm a poet, and I, I always like to respond to my 
language, and so it was a gift to have the title of this thing still kicking. <laughs> so I'm, what I wanted to do today, as soon as, as quickly as I can, is kind of, it's kind of a little bit of a mashup, but it, there, I think there are some tentacles out there. And of course, those of you who write poetry know that that's how poetry works. That you just kind of let it suck the feelers away. So um, I wrote a book for those of you who don't know many many years ago called Diamond Drill, which was story about uh, growing up in a Chinese-Canadian cafe, and uh, as, as uh, my friend David has suggested for <laughs> uh, my concern with making an acknowledgement, I should acknowledge that uh, Chinese-Canadian cafes were the, were the cafes that were open to indigenous people, and my grandfather was the that, and that's how he learned to talk Chinook, <laughs> jargon. Anyway, in the diamond end of a long green vinyl aisle between booths of chrome, naga hide, and formica are two large swinging wooden doors, each with a round hatch and face-sized window. Those kitchen doors can be kicked with such a slap they're heard all the way up to the soda fountain. On the other side of the doors, hardly audible to the customers, echoes a jargon of curses, jokes, and cryptic orders. Stack of hots, half a dozen fry, hot beef sand, Fingers and tongues all over the place, jive and swear, you maka I, bung you. And outside, running through and around the town, the creeks flow down to the lake with maybe a spring thaw. With the prairie sun over the mountains to the east, over my family's shoulders. The journal journey tilts tight-fisted through the gutter of the book, avoiding a place to start or end. Maps don't have beginnings, just edges. Some frayed and hazy margin of possibility, absent gap, shouts in the kitchen, fish and side of fries, over easy, on ground. I pick up an order and turn back through the doors. Whack! My foot registers more than its own imprint, starts to read the stain of memory. Thus, a kind of heterocellular recovery reverberates through the busy body from the foot against that kitchen door on up the leg into the torso and hands, eyes thinking straight ahead, looking through doors and languages, skin recalling its own reconnaissance, cooked into the steaming food, replayed in the folds of elsewhere, always far away, tunneling through the center of the earth, mouth saying can't forget, <coughs> mouth saying what I want to know can feed me, what I don't can bleed me. And it's that, uh, that kick that I'm kind of responding to in the title of this, this, this thing. Uh, and it's a kick that I would desperately like to be able to uh, maintain in my uh, growing older. <laughs> uh, it has to do with, and I'll move into the next section in a minute, but it has to do with my health and has to do with what I feel being healthy is that I need something to kick. Mm -hmm. yeah. It feels so good. <laughs> um, I want to uh, see if I can get this happening here. Uh, I want to honor, uh, pay tribute to my ally. Uh, colleague Roy Meekie, uh, 
been a friend of mine in this, in our uh, work, whatever, and racialization for many years. And Roy and I have talked, uh, Roy's been doing these collages since he, pretty much since he retired from teaching at Simon Fraser University, photographic collages, and uh, his collected uh, writing was published just last year by Talon Books, and it's full of you know, wonderful, wonderful collages. But he showed me this collage one day, and <laughs> I'm just having coffee, and he said, oh, I've got this, this new collage that's about my family, and, uh, and he, it's, it's in St. Agath, Manitoba, where his family was in, interned uh, during the Second World War. And uh, the bottom, bottom part of the, fa of the portrait is his, his, his mother and his aunt, and his uh, brother and cousin, and I forget who they all were, but, and Roy's, Roy's in here. <laughs> he isn't quite out yet. And we were looking at this, and I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's really amazing. And above it, it's kind of looking over the clouds, down in the family, are his contemporary relatives, a niece and a nephew, I think. I'm not sure who they were. But that sense of, so I, I said, gee, it's almost as if you're remembering the future. <laughs> that, and that this, putting these two things together. So we started talking about that whole um, complication of remembering the future and that memory, as, and as you'll see, I'm going to talk about memory in a minute. Memory is, remembering the future, I think, I suspect, this is just a poetic suspicion, I can't prove it. I suspect that remembering the future has something to do with keeping a healthy memory, uh, whatever that might mean. So I'm going to try to just uh, move into that briefly. Um, a couple of years ago, I was driving my mom home back to Indermere <coughs> after a couple of slightly confusing days staying with us at Deanshaven near Rianville. We drove along the east shore of Kootenay Lake, and she reprimanded me for not taking the ferry to Belfer and on to Nelson, where she thought she lived, where her home was. I just kept telling her that she lived in Invermere, that she had lived there for the past 15 years when I was driving her there to her home. But, as dementia goes, she kept questioning why, was, why I wasn't taking her to Nelson. By Moye Lake, about halfway back to Invermere, she felt quite confused lost, didn't know where she was, kept trying to locate herself in terms of home, tears streaming. She was tearful and our trip turned into a rather sad one. Just as we approached Fairmont Hot Springs, she livened up at the sudden familiarity. Since then, we've witnessed her loss and confusion about where home is a number of times. She might be up half the night packing her bags and in the morning she'd be waiting. I'm all packed. Are we ready to go home now? This from an apartment she had lived in for five years and in a town she's lived in for 18 years. She's 94 now. This was written some time ago. And the particularity of, I, of a home has deteriorated in her mind to some vague yearning, a vagueness of the local that is finally no longer mediated by language, but languagelessness the silence at the end of an incomplete sentence, so characteristic of the fall through dementia. 
So I was looking, I was trying to find some way to uh, combine that, that sense of memory and loss of memory and silence and home and what she was, what she was going through. I came across the word incitedness while reading Habib Chaudhuri's Remembering Home, Rediscovering the Self in Dementia. He's a, I think a, a professor at Simon Fraser, I believe. His sense is that home is an incitedness that we tap to support an intangible part of self-identity, a sense of self in place, a matter of projecting a sense of self into places of significance and creating a place that reminds one of one's, one's identity. This notion that home can operate as a foundation of identity allows that identity, since we seem to need it, might function as some kind of soul, part of the baggage we can't leave behind or somewhere else. And that it, identity, therefore needs the constructs of the local, home, workplace, school, kitchen, neighborhood, and so forth, eventually in dementia as a presence that is absent. As writers, whether this incitedness resides in the poetics of memory or narrativity doesn't matter. The local has always seemed fundamental in that sense, that home reveals in both its material and discursive appearance, both the here and the not here, our mindfulness and desire, the presence of the stranger and the, the astonishment of strangers. Now that discourse is a discourse that comes out of all the, you know, the thinking and work that I've been involved with in with, uh, 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 foreignicity and Asianicity and racialization and so forth. And it, I'm just positing it as, as part of this, uh, something I'm trying to understand about this notion of remembering the future and memory because uh, now in my 80s and I'm slipping into dementia myself. I'm slip, I, I'm, 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 of course, I'm worried about that because it's genetic and I, you know, mm -hmm. gee, I'm gonna end up like her, right? Uh, maybe not, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like being old and forgetful like a lot of my old forgetful friends. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, but I am, I want that, uh, if, if we're gonna, if I'm still kicking, <laughs> I want to remember to know how to kick, and I don't know how to do that. I really need some help. <laughs> um, so you're going, you, you want to remember? I want to remember how to kick. You want to remember I, remember, I think that kicking will help in, in mm -hmm. Would it help if I kicked you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who has to kick. Get it right. <laughs> if one of us sort of stood on either side of us, you could kick the wall. I mean, we could hold you while you kick the wall. Would that help? I think I'm between two of David's books. <laughs> anyway, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't want to apologize for Roy, but he, he can't. He, I think he would love to be here, but he can't be here uh, for health reasons. So. He is coming. Oh, there you go. You got him. Do we have a date on that? What the year? Mm -hmm. I'm just, okay, so timekeeper over here. Uh, David? Yeah. <laughs> well, 
I've never felt so out of place in my life. I um, normally prepare very deeply and I like to come in almost as a text and just read reflections that I've worked really hard on for some time and, and, uh, and then come alive in the Q&A. <laughs> um, I'll note that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was so happy to be last because I would follow, and, and none of you have been of any help at all. <laughs> uh, so I'm so sorry. Gonna, I'm going to do my best. Um, none of you have been any help Because I've, um, I've got an embarrassment of uh, privileges that begin with uh, able-bodiedness, really begins with able-bodiedness. And uh, I was looking at these various words, still kicking, okay, I don't identify with that because that suggested athleticism that I don't possess and not interested in engaging, so that was off. Um, and even the idea of kicking, of leaving my personal zone, I find, except through this and projections like that, I find very difficult. So that kind of action of intruding in another space uh, really is painful. The notion of the body came up and I was thinking that um, I've been told by my partner that I do have a body, uh, but it's not the first thing I think of until about five years ago where I got to see my father dying in the hospital with a very similar body, very similar body. And it struck me um, about a certain kind of embodiment. And I do like to, I've, people have heard, told this metaphor before and I can't help but theorize, but it, it's very helpful in trying to understand some of the things we've been saying. But seeing my, my dad's body there made me think of um, this as a contingent uh, privilege, able-bodiedness, because we're all going to have disabled bodies at various points. And it really brought it home in a more concrete way. But the metaphor that I like, which is not a metaphor, it's an embodied thing, is, and I've gotten this from a number of elders. Leroy Little Bear uh, has talked about this um, in one way. Jerry Saddleback is the main fellow that I think with. And that is the notion of um, a drum. So a drum is a particular instance of something uh, in the sense that it couldn't exist without drums preceding it. So it is an iteration of this drum and that drum will be a version that will be reflected in the future. So it's just one instance of this version of a drum. And to get all possessive about it, to want to put it in a museum, to curate it, to, to cure it, to, to embalm it, is a disruption of that natural rhythm. And um, being able to see my father off and knowing that he's embodied in me and in my kids um, is a very significant uh, feeling as well as the intellectual not knowing. But the interesting thing in say planes thinking is that that drum is always accompanied by another body the maker of the drum and that maker is preceded and goes forward and this is a beautiful metaphor for getting a sense of the contingency of our bodies and its continuance and i was thinking earlier with the first panel uh, lillian particularly i've always aspired to be a, a footnote you know, um, there's actually a footnote to my thoughts in the, the TRC, and nothing's made me more happy than to be a footnote there. 
And <laughs> so there's this idea that the idea is more important than the body, that the idea is like that drum. And I consider myself a critical creative, which is a, a living oxymoron, and one gets in the way of the other constantly. So my criticality makes creativity import, uh, difficult because um, I have to park at the door while I'm making. And my creative side makes my critical writing uh, take an inordinate amount of time. I've never published a book. I may yet, but uh, it'll only be a collection of other pieces. But the critical creativity means that I'm always at odds with myself. And so while I cherish this metaphor of the drum, I can't stand it. Because I don't want to make anything that anybody's made before. I want to indigenize still lives one day, and I want to perform as Louis Riel's ghost in front of John A. MacDonald's statues the next day and, and whatever. I don't want to be held to anybody's tradition. Um, and so when I look at community, this has been an embarrassment for me. Um, as a Métis person, I feel myself as an individual, uh, not quite genius, but creative person that doesn't want to be held in. But my whole life's gone in the opposite way. All my curatorial projects in New York and Sydney and Regina have been um, uh, two people, myself and a female indigenous curator. And I don't think I'll ever work that another way. Uh, I've learned so much. I'm working on a public artwork in Edmonton with the Cree, Papas Chase Cree community and the Métis community. And I've and 12 other artists or more than that. And to see myself totally dissipate in this project, managing, controlling it, being a creative engine, um, but not owning it and expressing the culture has been really significant to me. And feeling that, so um, in the teaching I got from my Métis aunt years ago, who was a nun, a Roman Catholic nun, and the most radical, separatist, probably lesbian feminist <laughs> ever, uh, no cattle could be held to her uh, in terms of that separatist womanist project, always inspiring. But I said, you know, I was downtown Edmonton in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, I said, I want to volunteer in the soup kitchen. And she drops her spoon or whatever she's holding and just looked at me and says, we got plenty of people who could make sandwiches and serve soup. You're an artist. What are you going to do? And realizing that we're not all community leaders or extroverted people, um, what is the skill you're going to bring to a, a common cause? And yet still have space for yourself so you can be that unique individual, whether it's an illusion or not. The last phrase, the meaning of care, I want to talk about, a little bit about, and I've got an, uh, an anecdote with no ending because <laughs> I haven't concluded this. So this summer, just a couple months ago, I was very lucky to work with Carmen Papalia, who's a brilliant um, embodied theorist, a non-visual learner. Her, he calls himself, I call him, I call him a non-visual artist. And uh, he invited me to work with him at a symposium at BAMP, um, primarily around differently abled, disabled, no, no common word, group of individuals and the institutions that are, seek to accommodate or I hope collaborate with them. And it looked comic, you know, impossible, ridiculous. And it was only because he asked me to that I would ever do anything like this. Um, I don't identify uh, with disability communities. He and I have done a lot of talks together before and it's more around indigenous notions of care 
and um, how to correlate alongside with each other, again, without occupying each other's space or trying to get people to do things. And it was a beautiful disaster. It was so amazing. So as a very introverted person, it was astounding for him on the first day to come in and say, well, say, Dave, um, um, I don't know if you're aware, but I can't see anybody here. <laughs> and I can't tell their facial expressions. I can't get the sense of the mood and whether people are getting with this program or not. And we're in, you know, 40, 50, 60 people in a room and the light sensitive people need the lights down and the uh, people who are deaf need to lead, read lips and the people who are smudging and then the, the people who the, the, the things are give, making their eyes run and so the doors are open, but I'm too cold. And... <laughs> it was incredible. And so this notion that there was a disabled community is <laughs> a most romantic, most dramatic sense of uh, radical individualism I've ever seen. And I became at home because then I could go to each person individually, and uh, which is my preferred way of being, and uh, understand their needs. I didn't see, talk to everybody because there were a lot of. Um, non-disabled people who didn't need any of my attention or care. You know, it was uh, just lovely to um, not turn up my nose at people, but really shift the order of, of interaction. I learned a huge, a, a great deal, and not everything worked. There was a big disaster at the end, a failure. Well, I don't even talk about accommodation anymore, but uh, radical senses of uh, collaboration where both people and systems are disturbed by the interaction and creation of a new relation. Um, but this notion of finding ways for people to be radically individual and not corralled by an identity uh, seems central to this um, critical, creative way of, of being. Um, like I say, there's no conclusion, um, but thank you for listening. <laughs> Can I have a housekeeping thing? Sure. Um, I meant to be in when I was speaking um, to thank Larissa, particularly, and to thank everyone who's here because this has been a beautiful, beautiful experience. It's the first time I've been in academia and liked it. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've even learned some new words I get to look up when I get home, if they're in there. <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to say miigwech, mm -hmm. which is how we say thank you mm -hmm. in my language. So I want to open it up to the open it up to the floor. Um, I'm I'm aware though that we, you know, this is a tends for some reason it kind of feels like an emotional panel um, when we're talking about health and we're talking about our bodies and we're talking about um, the meaning of care and you know for for me as a junior can I still call myself junior scholar? Um, Youthful. Youthful, thanks. Youthful scholar. Um, and learning uh, from uh, a two-spirited community in Winnipeg that we uh, made a point to you know, turn, turn the university and say, we're going to have elders come into the, into the space. They've been here for a while. We need uh, helpers. We need to pay them. We need support. We need 
and we just kept making the, that, that was a strategy. Uh, it was a strategy to keep saying that to the university and then keep saying it to, to shirk. <laughs> keep, like, this is what these, you know, these people are going to do. Um, because this is going to build knowledge. This is going to build um, build knowledge within the university. And and I mean, we we got support, right? We, it was small, but um, we did we did get some support. But I, I wonder, just thinking about the academy and like Larissa, you're going to have discussion or not discussions, but interviews, right? As podcasts, but right in front of us right now, we have four people whose life's work could be a dissertation, right? Like could be, and I don't mean dissertation as in here's a thesis, here's a, I don't mean it that way, but like as a collection of work, right? Universities no longer do that, where they take someone's work or body of work or, um, and what would that look like? And I mean, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm thinking in a couple of different, a couple of different ways. Um, you know, we're going to have these interviews. They're going to be podcasts. Uh, but what? I don't know. What What do you all What do you all think? Are there questions? I mean, I did have this thought as I was putting the um, together that mm -hmm. everybody is like, I've invited this teacher to me, one way or the other, in various you know moments in my life. Mm -hmm. um, it's just really extraordinary experiences to have you all you know in the same room. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And. I guess partly because of this much mystery here, I just see this. Oh, he's right there. there. Oh, it's a other side there. Yeah. Explain who they Oh, these are two graduate students, uh, PhD okay. students in our program, who I think is James as well. There's a few of you who who um put forward a letter to the department to get rid of the comprehensive exam, which is this very conservative, quite unpleasant experience uh, of engagement with the pen, and maybe we'll just leave it at that. Okay. And uh, it's just interesting thinking about how such a list comes into being, who it was that put such a list together, how that ima imagination of individual as a discipline comes into being. And as I was putting this together, I was thinking, you know, in a sense, the folks in this room are my department. I'm not sure it's a department of English, um, but these these are my profs, in a sense, yeah. right? And how different our lives would be if we were, if these people, so you, if you were all, were able to live out a professional <coughs> career in association with offices next door to one another in conversation on a daily basis. <gasps> Right? What, how we know the world and know our culture oh. as opposed to in the formation that it actually is. So it was just one way of thinking about this gathering for me, like just kind of like, what, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. Talking about a community. Yes. I mean, the great, uh, you know, just in terms of what I was get, trying to get at in terms of home, that um, that's very much part of our sense of, of home is, is that sometimes an idealized community. Uh, sometimes, as we have this weekend. Oh, you're uh, always annoying as heck, though. 
or, or just a very fleeting memory. So I think if we're going to use imagination, I'm, I'm always interested in, in frame. How are we framing this? Who's framing this? Yeah. We're doing this according to who? Who, who determined the, 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 the rules of this, right? And I think that art history in, in particular has had, uh, um, Western art history has had a way of framing things a certain way that has excluded a lot of stories. Yeah. And, and the reclamation that you're talking about is exactly that, is creating a, a frame, a different frame, and different protocols around how we're going to remember and how we're going to honor those stories and how we're going to pass them on and make sure that the, the people that are present, it's all about presence. Yeah, it's always about because the people that are present in those moments and and being part of the honoring now have to carry that story. So it's not That's just it. a story that is put in writing in a book. It re if you receive a story, then you're responsible for that story. You yeah. can't pretend you didn't hear it. Yeah, and you you have a responsibility to pass to pass it on. So yeah. maybe thinking in terms of how we frame that. It's also understanding ourselves in a different way. So I'm only talking about indigenous. So I do see this huge difference between traditional people, Indian Act Indians, Aboriginal people, and the indigenous. And this is the site of the indigenous that we're talking about, where we are making it up for ourselves based on tradition, based on these protocols, but creating something new that doesn't contain, isn't contained by that, and not contained within the Western tradition either. Uh, and orality and performativity are at the center of that. The idea of contingency and repetition repetition came up. It's in repetition that we honor, and when we stop, then maybe that thing is not useful anymore, and we have to let it go. Anyway. Part of the life cycle. Life cycle, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I think of, there's, um, I think it was, Bo no, it wasn't, Bo no, I think it was Bo Dick, who in his community, they were there was a totem pole that was arrested in Chicago, around the Chicago area for years, and they just found out about it, and they wanted to bring it back, and they couldn't get back, because he was all upset, and he says, that one's dead. You know, let me remake it. So then you're, the materiality is obviously important, it's a material thing, but not necessarily that thing only, you can re get, and what are the things we need to revive? What are the people we need to revive? So how do we, this is a very different uh, way of remembering, exactly. letting go of, of an object that has no spirit anymore, and recreating yeah. a new one, so you can remember the whole story, but you don't have to cling on to that object. And I, I, and I think that um, in those kinds of ideas, you know, what you said yesterday about curation as well, the the, the, the importance of curation, and s s for all of us, whatever institutions, you know, we use that word, we're talking about. Um, I think a lot about this in medicine in general too, or other institutions like. I don't know when, um, when when we go into a, a a shopping mall or something like that. That that is there. Can can I myself think about an ethic of care in all those different contexts? And part of that ethic of care is that curation. Curation. Now, a, a university doesn't. Well, arguably, I'm, I'm going to say arguably, doesn't allow us to do that um, as much as we possibly would be inclined to or should. But I think that can be a bit of an excuse. You know, it, yeah. um, I remember back years ago to one of Roy Meekie's first talks here to, this is in the 90s, um, to, to graduate students here. 
and he he's he re, he really challenged the grads then grad students who were at that time a bunch of students of color and we had the largest number of indigenous students that we've ever had so um and he said to all of them look around you know it's important for all of us to look around and recognize that community that's there and then he said and look to see who's not here um, and pay attention to that. And then he said, and all of you, and he meant the graduate students, he said, all of you can make that change. You know, it's not simply this top-down process. It's a cultural, it's a process of racialization. He was pointing out that we had no visibly disabled students. Um, and he was, he was talking about race largely. Um, and that and that was really an important moment, I think, for me as a fairly newer um, s scholar as well to to realize that this was part of my um, this should be part of my activism within the academy as as well. Um, and that that I think was a curation of practices. Curative. Well, I mean, the root for curation it includes care and cure. Mm -hmm. But I also think that one of the consensus out of this group in Banff was, what is the institution? Uh, you know, it's, it's people and buildings and policies. Each one, you know, when you've got a ramp that's too steep, that's a problem with the institution in the physical sense. But also, what's the community of care, especially in these radically individual people? It's a continuous negotiation. And it takes a great deal of labor and it requires the institution to slow the fuck down. Um, mostly what I was talking about in my keynote was the necessity of the institution to streamline everything. So towards able bodies mm -hmm. and anything that stands in its way becomes caught in this eddy. Um, but I, I think there's this contrary institution that happens. Everything that's nevertheless that you all are doing when you're using your professional funds to accommodate or help to create equity or um, rethinking spaces like this that are at a higher level of academic thinking because it's creating you know all the four elements of you know spiritual physical mental and uh, emotional um, uh, which is much more challenging but creates a different kind of knowledge I think uh, but it also makes things inordinately more difficult <laughs> It's easier to streamline. I'd like to, ins to insert uh, uh, the, the notion of uh, some, uh, that I've always used that Keats's negative capability, the ability to remain in mysteries, doubts, and uncertainties. And so uh, I've always found that artists in their willingness to occupy that spaces of uncertainty, spaces of improvisation, surprise, uh, frequently uncover possibilities or paths that uh, we hadn't considered. So I'd also be wary of, you know, pre-conditioning pre yeah. uh, one's presence uh, in that. And yeah, just the ability to remain in mystery mm -hmm. is, I think, important not to give that up.
scenes are the most fun ones that it just I love that so much and it just made me think so much differently about because like accommodation is a big word in university and no. in other institutions and when you're in a med ed conversations about this how do how do we how do we accommodate everyone in the classroom and just switching from that idea of accommodation to collaboration is it's such a it's more difficult because it doesn't um, it doesn't allow the like culture of the individual to not be gross, right? But it's like it can create something better, I think. And it's less um, it's more balanced. Like it's not about like accommodation can be just I think it's now just for like for transitions. And I think that it um, it's about it's a balance as well. And so that idea of collaborating together is really what that and we had this idea of ethics. There has to be an ethics of collaboration. And so what are the terms? So for me, a collaboration requires two people coming together as equals, even when they're obviously not. But when you come in with that attitude of equal equivalence, and so that's a negotiation, that first step. And um, separating it from notions of, say, employment. If I pay somebody to realize my vision or to do something, that's employment. So how do we determine equity and bring people to the table. So at this meeting in August, all of the disabled people were poor. All of them. It was astonishing. And how it fact that that created this class difference between those who were accommodating them. Wow, so how do we even get to an intellectual place of exchange with that inequity right away? And so then the next step for me is this notion that both systems and individuals must be disturbed by the collaboration so that I'm just particularly interested in how is it Indigenous folks work with anybody else. And every, in every case, either they've got to come in the representational mode where they're representing their culture and the culture is undisturbed and you get a glimpse at it and that's it. To me, that's still employment. And in a collaborative mode, you're bringing your representation or you're in a dialogic situation and it's going to disturb your understanding of your culture, especially around things like gender, race, ability, whatever. And that becomes difficult, and few Indigenous people have the resources to stand that attention. Mm -hmm. So how do we create, it's very complicated. <laughs> but when it happens, moments of happening, it's just amazing. And that's why I like the cycle of art and the kind of thing you were discussing, France, in your uh, case, it takes a lot of time to create these spaces, mm -hmm. and there's no protocols within tradition or the academy or funding agencies. So you're creating something brand new. And I suggest you don't report on it yet <laughs> until you figure out what it is. Otherwise, will people copy it without um, understanding the, the, the wisdom part of it? Anyway, that's going a little further. But. Yeah, I'm really interested in this because um, it's actually shedding light on something that um, has been a concern to me as a teacher is the question of accommodation. And I'm wondering whether institutions like universities can actually enact collaboration instead of accommodation. Because accommodation, suggests that there is this thing, and then it morphs itself to accommodate the other. But what it, does, what it, what it strikes me in working with a number of students who have, uh, who have had accommodation is that what happens, well, in the, in the Ontario situation, is students pay, they get uh, listed as an accommodation, they get these sets of accommodations, and then, and then you're supposed to respond to them. But it seems to fix the student at a particular point, particularly students with questions of anxiety or whatever. I remember I had a student, and the accommodation was the student could never be asked to speak in class. They were never going to speak in class. And I sat down with the student and, and talked about a good friend of mine who had severe anxiety. 
and then became a freelance writer. And then had the choice not to do it, and she had to go through this huge process of like, you know, a shrink was involved and all that stuff. But by, you know, over the course of years, was able to like stand up and talk. So I said, like, how could you see yourself? What kind of conditions would allow you to imagine yourself in that situation? By the end of the year, like, she was just talking. And then the next year I ran into her, and she was like, a blabberman. The institution and the kind of way that accommodations work can't imagine the student, the fixes the student at a particular moment. Yeah, and that really bugged something. So I was wondering, those of you who perhaps you just got on the panel, how do you see collaboration working within the university? Yeah. From from my perspective, we, we there have been a lot of changes, at least here in Alberta, with universities and colleges because of um, Alberta human rights law, and and what interests me as as some someone with illnesses and disabilities is how poorly and irregularly that's applied. So for faculty, it doesn't work. For staff, it doesn't work. Um, we have no accommodation or accessibility policies for any, any, any of us. We do have a student accessibility office. Um, and, and so that's where I, I, in terms of my own activism, I just want to get litigious. You know, that, that there's no, none of the requests that people are making on faculty or staff are unreason unreasonable requests. Um, and in terms of students, I, I agree. I think it's, it's the poverty of policy, like a lack of imagination around policy um, that, that is, histor is a historical one, and that people aren't revamping the whole, and they're not funding, they're not giving resources to the offices that, that need them. So we know for graduate students, for instance, accommodation is, is accommodation policy here, I should say, is is also very uh, almost useless because they make assumptions about coursework, curriculum, pedagogy, time, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and and that that that's one of the reasons that that I, I I openly disclose. A lot of people won't, and for good reason. I openly disclose to everyone who will listen um, what is going on for me, because I think they do need to know that. There are places in this university that I can't walk the stairs still, or that there are um, that we we have colleagues who who need assistance, and that that needs to be kind of a normalized part of our our life. That's an ethic of care. Um, but I I agree with you that how the accommodation office resolves things is to say either we don't know how to deal with an anxiety disorder when a student says I will not do group work. Um, and that, you know, they then ask us to accommodate. Um, and, or, uh, what, what happens is that there's a kind of, um, reaction amongst us to say, well, this is, this is an unreasonable request and most, most accommodations are not. And so we tend to have that kind of, um, uh, sort of talk about kicking um, you know, some, some of the things that people say in department meetings and, and higher up are horrifying in terms of taught the way that students and others are demonized around necessary, uh, what we call accommodation. But, but is, you know, we can collaborate with our institutions and say, 
this is what I think I need. This is what you are required by law to provide. Let's let's make a let's make a, a plan. I was very fortunate by the Commonwealth in my family. That's a, a very important issue. And I would I would add to what you said that in my perception of how accommodation works, at least in my institution in the University of Toronto, is in conjunction with human rights and privacy mm -hmm. laws because you as an instructor is given uh, uh, a letter, sent a letter saying yeah. you will not expect your student to speak, to write the exam, to attend classes, to meet any of the deadlines. So what am I supposed to do? No participation day. And you don't know what it is. And the students who don't come to tell you, uh, I need that kind of an extension. So I, when I approach students with accommodation, I discovered most of them did not have a real medical need, it was anxiety. And so I have, and anxiety can take different forms. I completely recognize that because I've been through that myself. But I think the system infantilizes them and pathologizes them and not, and eliminating the instructor in that discussion, it does raise, it, raise questions about pedagogy because I remember when I started my career, there was no such thing. Uh, but you were in a position as a teacher to talk to the student, to figure out, you know, their needs and accommodate them. Uh, but not, but getting a sense, and it's not that I want to know all the medical details of my students, but that kind of privacy that puts a wedge between, the, you know, the instructor and the student and the system, I find you, and I'd like to hear others talk a bit about that, I find extremely difficult to know how to deal with. Uh, because it preempts what I can do to talk to my students. And in some cases, those who came to talk to me, I was able, they were able to meet all the deadlines. Because at the end, if you get accommodation from more than one or two courses, you're overwhelmed at the end. At some point, you need to do some of the basic work, right? And so, uh, you know, the accommodation system is, is I think, uh, raises a lot of questions. But I think that in, what, in the examples you're both giving, and Aruna and David, um, what you're talking about is that kind of collaboration that David's talking about, right? You, you talk to the student, you, right? And so I come, I come to this as a grade seven teacher. Um, I have a B.Ed. degree, and so I taught in public schools for three years. And I had many students who, along with their parents, with the administrator, I mean, again, that's a, it's an elementary school, but we had conversations every day with this, you know, um, we ha my, I had an extra prep because I had three students who needed um, quote unquote accommodations. So when you come to it, like I think that it's not, it's, I think that, it, that we can call it collaboration of accommodation, right? Like when we start talking to our students and saying, well, what is it that you need? Right? What is it that? But the system, I'm saying that the system doesn't encourage that kind of dialogue. In yeah. fact, it, is it, it discourages. Chris has a hand. Oh, what? Chris? I think that accommodation is a, it's one of these words like tolerance. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a normative concept which centers able bodied or whiteness or whatever. But I do agree with what Paul said the other day that I'm not really ready for collaboration yet. I think it's problematic and there's too much groundwork that needs to be done. And David encapsulated it with his phrase of uh, coming together 
as equals even though we're not equals. <laughs> yeah. that, that encapsulates why collaboration <coughs> is the right word. So the way we talk about it, and it might just be a useful concept, is engagement. Because engagement is that space where I don't care what the system encourages you, you have to do it. If that's what you're doing, that's what you have to do. If you're a prof or you're teaching, whatever, you have to engage. And when you engage, it makes, as David said, it makes both parties feel discomfort. But that discomfort is pedagogically and politically useful because it's that grading that moves it forward. And maybe we will get, maybe in my lifetime, I might see a point where people can actually collaborate. But I think jumping to the word collaboration is kind of dangerous because we're still on very unequal uh, playing fields in terms of resources, in terms of history, in terms of colonialism, and so on. So I hope I'm not stealing your concept, David, but I well, think I mean, that state of mind is very res Responding to the very practical, so mm -hmm. practical. Our, our university runs the same way, but it's written, so I teach mostly studio arts, it's written for an academic, for exam, and so on. And because it's following a litigious model, legal model, it comes up with the solutions out without any agency from the student. They got a diagnosis, and so everybody fitting these diagnoses ends up with these solutions. And when you sit down with the student and say, what do you need? How can I help? And uh, if it pedagogically is unsound, I've only turned down one student who had so many environmental sensitivities that working in the paint studio was not a good idea. And... Uh, but in every other case, we find ways. And, and I think your example is the best one. They, every one of them over time, whatever it was, has found a way in because we've been able to be persons with them. That's mm -hmm. what I mean by the collaboration. I, my stepdad taught here, and I remember this is going back like 35 years, and he's like, Dave, I had this encounter with this student who was a woman in her 50s, Blackfoot woman, and she said, uh, I can't take your education anymore. I just, you, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> and he said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I mean, first of all, start you know, <laughs> declaring yourself as a white heterosexual, <laughs> you know, that you're a colonist in her territory. Or you could change. You couldn't change. What all these micro things do is require us to change by minutia and as individuals rather than as litigious agents. That's why I find it complex, and, but it gets easier each time because you've come up with new solutions in the studio or wherever you're at. And those should never or could never be written down, and then they wouldn't be nimble. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean in that case with uh, collaboration. One last I one. Okay, two last, and then Lillian, you're gonna have the final word. Yep. I'm not sure if, I mean, collaboration as a word can be thrown out, but I'm not sure if collaboration requires everybody to be on that same team. I think one of the things that needs to happen is just an understanding of where we are. So one of the things that I would often say to students at the beginning of class is, I'm an artist who's been working longer than you, but you know that the, the, the thing about art is that an undergraduate student can be absolutely brilliant work. Asun Kobayashi was an international art star as an undergrad, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that she did. But it's that I'm choosing to work in an institution, and you're choosing to come into the institution. These are the things that institutions give. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that institutions operate, so that when you graduate, you're expected to be certain kinds of things that, that articulate with other institutions, that that's what the meaning of these tests or whatever grading happens. Mm -hmm. um, and we can stand back from that, that this is how it works. And I just try to get them to kind of understand a system and what it means to work within a system. And I always say, you know, there are students who 
are really good students, they get A's all the way through, they come out of school and they're not gonna be really happy. Mm -hmm. Often the best artists are ones who flunk school, mm -hmm. right? They they kind of can't stand the discipline, but they have, you have low grades. So when I give you a grade, it's not a judgment on how good a person you are or how good an artist you are. But I think that's that's what I mean, which is why I'm used, um, um, attracted to what you say, whether we use the term collaboration mm -hmm. or not. Yeah, I'm gonna leave that discussion. I do have stuff to say. I have a whole um, spectrum, um, what you call, ability class. So a church where it is normal to say what they like, they will succeed. Whether they go to school and they don't get in, they will get a bit of house, my class, or whatever it takes, right? But um, I know it's a more complex than that, but I just wanted to say that. <laughs> and that, like teaching, is related to their learning. So some people they have to do that, so whatever it takes. So anyway, that I wanted to ask Krista um, this question. Um, we're talking about you know still teaching and uh, healthy bodies, and I guess and healthy bodies uh, also means healthy so um, looking back, I know that your work rescued a lot of people. Your actual poetry was out there doing work while you were off somewhere uh, romancing. Or <laughs> 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 in bars. So you love the work to work, yeah. right? Um, That's its purpose. <laughs> I believe yeah. that, that the purpose of art is to work. Well, talk a little bit about that, because I mm. wanted Yeah, can you talk about mm. what went into that and how satisfied or dissatisfied you are with uh... Well, the, the beginning of my career as a writer was an accident. That's the main thing. Um, I was involved in the feminist movement and in AIM sort of parallelly, and, and there was a lot of conflict uh, you know, I was told very firmly by AIM that I could not announce myself openly as a dyke at anything that they were doing, right? Um, so I originally was an artist. That was the thing that I love. I still love to draw more than I love to write. And in the pressure of being involved in a lot of political actions, someone has to say, to uh, say what it is that's happening, to, 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 to frame it, if you, if you will. And so I started writing poems to frame what was happening in the fisherman's struggle and all the different things that I was going through. And the, the most uh, famous poem that I wrote, uh, I Walk in the History of My People, I wrote it in a, a, I was in college at the time, and I wrote it in the, classroom and uh, the teacher made us all go around and read what we had written and I stood up and read that and there was this absolute silence for almost five minutes everybody just staring at me 
And I thought, oh, wow, I've blown it now. They're going to throw me out. And then the teacher said to me, she was a famous feminist at the time, she said, that's not poetry, that's rhetoric. And uh, uh, that's politics. And I sort of sat down and I thought, oh, I guess I don't belong in college. And I did leave soon after that. And I was involved in all these grassroots struggles. So, <clears throat> for instance, there was... Um, uh, a house in San Francisco that had been occupied for almost a century by various Asian people, diff mi different mixes. And the somebody, I forget who, oh, it was a big hotel, was going to demolish this, this house, this hotel, and build this huge motel or hotel there. And there was a long fight about trying to stop that. We were unsuccessful, and there's now this gross hotel that has steps that are almost this high. So it's almost an impenetrable building. Um, and then it had sort of like fake pagodas coming off of it. So this is now a very lush hotel. So being involved in those kinds of struggles, that's where the words come from, is from the fights that I was through and trying to talk about what was happening in those fights. And I actually never planned on publishing. I was always going around speaking orally, because that's what I'm more comfortable with. And uh, when Press Gang said they wanted to publish me, I thought, oh, sure, why not? You know, I had no idea what I was getting into. And everything just sort of snowballed from there. And so for me, art has always been, even drawing is work. It's about changing things. It's about helping people to see things in a different way. So the part I'm working on now is about trash, and that has some personal connotations, but it's also about the whole idea that for most people in the world, the earth is literally a garbage can. Literally a garbage can. The ocean is full of garbage. There are actual islands of garbage in the ocean. And to me, keeping all the caps and all the twist ties and all that stuff, I'm making things with it, right? So my idea is that that work will then work for other people to think about what it is they're throwing out. You know, like this, this can has been driving me crazy the whole time. But anyway, I want to go in there and take the recycling out and, you know, anyway. So, um, so for me, art has always been more process than monument. I had never thought about that before, but I, I realize now even my writing and the books, they're not a monument. They're, they're supposed to be out there working, and that's actually the most important thing. You know, I've won awards and all that stuff, but I don't pay much attention to it because that's just noise, uh, and it can be very confusing. Uh, awards can give you a wrong direction. They can really twist your head up. So you have to sort of say, oh, thank you very much, and just leave it somewhere, you know? And uh, so, so the main thing for me about art is it's, it's the literal gun we are using to change how the world is. It's the way we're going to uh, illuminate people into kindness, because at the base, that's, that's everything. I mean, you don't put stairs up because they're not kind. <laughs> you 
you know, it, it, there shouldn't have to be any kind of struggle about that. You know, I mean, I always say to people, you know, TB's never had stairs. Uh, you know, wh why do you need stairs? Uh, and ramps are actually so much more beautiful. I mean, if you fall on a ramp, you roll to the bottom. And you, generally speaking, are not too hurt. If you fall on stairs, as I can testify, you can be very badly injured. So, you know, a lot of what has happened with colonization, look, I, I think that the purists, or the purists, <laughs> the, the, the Puritans were sadists. And they were very angry people who came to these shores they, because they came here as well. And they were mad. They were really angry. I'm not quite clear about what, but of course they still exist all through the United States. So they're really angry, and it's somebody else's fault, and they want someone else to fix it. And so that's how they stay forever, angry. Somebody fix it, angry. And you know, it's, it's really boring. And I see art as the thing that grabs a hold of someone like that and goes, stop it, <laughs> you know, stop it. <laughs> you know, because to stay angry and be unkind is wasting your life, absolutely wasting your life. You know, you're going to wake up and, and be on your deathbed and be thinking, oh, my God, what a jerk I was, you know, <laughs> and that, now it's over. And so I think of art not as a monument, but as something always moving and breathing. And, and in my writing, uh, one of the reasons I hate making a book is because then the poem is in a tomb, right? It's frozen. However, I've discovered that then when you read it again, you can change the words around. Nobody knows the difference, you know? So, um, so I'm finding ways to break out of that kind of tomb sense of, of books, because uh, they really do look like little tombstones, you know, if you, if you hold them up. And uh, the, so, so my opinion about what art is, is I think not common, I would say, especially not in the United States, where most art is um, very large, very meaningless, very soulless, and very expensive. So that's what art is in the United States, is great big huge pieces of, whew. I mean, actually, the oil spill that I saw on the street the other day with the radiating colors is more beautiful than most American art, in my opinion. So, and, and, and in the United States, native art has been co-opted. Um, and even though there's a law that you can't claim to be a native artist if you aren't, you know, enrolled, there's a lot of people that who sort of skirt around that, you know. And and for instance, I got in an argument with this woman at a festival. Um, she had taken Haida designs and put them on her drums, and was selling them. And I said, you can't do that. And uh, as I was going by, I just said, you know, because I was on my way to go speak, I said, you know, you can't do that. Those aren't your designs. And she shouted at me, I dreamed those. And I thought, well, you know, they're still not yours. <laughs> and I just kept going to where I was going to speak. And, and when I was speaking, uh, she came charging into the room and said, how dare you tell me what I can do with my art? And she started this whole kerfuffle, you know, and, and, and the people in the classroom were just like astounded. They couldn't figure out what was going on. She wouldn't shut up. 
you know, so finally I, I sat down and I said, go ahead and talk, you know, and then she got really angry and flew out the door. So, you know, art to me is something sacred in, in, in the very beginning. Art is always sacred. And it, if it does not, when you make art, if you're not praying, in my opinion, then you're not making art because when you are making art, it's it's a, a spiritual experience. You're you're entering the world of creation, and you are yourself creating. That's a pretty uh, powerful uh, experience. We hope you enjoyed this roundtable chaired by Sharon Paul Ruprai with Aruna Srivastava, Christos, Fred Wah, and David Garneau as participants. I'm Isabel Mahalski, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckle at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trin Delaney, Rebecca Jeline, Isabel Mahalski, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.